Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In this episode, we'll be going to San Francisco in America and Birmingham and Bristol here in the UK as we delve into the latest developments in quantum technologies. We'll hear from Professor Kai Bongs and Dr. Anki Lohman about that exciting future of quantum tech. But there's only one place to start in the world of quantum technologies, and that is, of course, quantum computing. So I went to the University of Bristol, where I met Dr. Raphael Clifford and Dr. Ashley Montanaro, the authors of a recent paper which appeared to be a setback for those rooting for quantum supremacy. We'll come to that, but I wanted to gauge where we are in the development of quantum computers. The second voice you'll hear is that of Ashley Montanaro, but I asked Raphael Clifford how our current position in the development of quantum computers compares to that historically of classical computers. Not entirely clear. I mean, you could take the view that we're really at a very early stage, or even pre-tubes, you know, tubes, basically. Because um, it's, it's, it's just not obvious how large-scale quantum computers will be made as yet. That question is itself still open. There are people who are deeply sceptical and say they can never be made which in my view is you know, an overstatement, you can't, can't know that. But there are those who are slightly less sceptical and say that maybe in the real world, as it actually exists, it's just going to be impossible from an engineering point of view, which is a perfectly plausible, in my, my view, stance to take. It may just not be possible. Mm. Nobody knows. There are a lot of smart people working on trying to make it possible. And somehow that's different from the history of classical computing, because even when Babbage made his you know, machine with the cogs, you could imagine putting some more cogs in and getting a stronger person to try and turn them. Mm. You could have some clear view about how to make it scale. Mm. Whereas my understanding is that it's still not... There isn't a clear route. There are many different possible routes, but it's not. there isn't a clearly a route that everyone agrees, yes, that's going to work. And I think, yeah, the Babbage thing is a great yeah. comparison because, um, you know, then, you know, obviously he did not build his analytical engine. And yeah. the reason is that the technology of the time was not sufficiently precise uh, to... Um, you know, mass production wasn't sufficiently good to enable him, him to, to do it. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe the same thing is, is going to happen now. And, you know, we, we just don't know. And it's, it's somehow it will come down to cost because perhaps in, you know, Babbage's time, you know, he could have found, you know, enough cogs that were precise enough and strong enough people and so on, but it would just have been incredibly expensive to do it. And it would involve inventing whole new industries and so on. Um, and now, you know, we, we have some very good theoretical reasons for thinking that we can build large-scale quantum computers. Um, and, you know, people you know, who are experimentalists have done the kind of sober calculations of figuring out, is it going to be too expensive? You know, will we need too many fridges and this kind of thing? But um, they, they think that, um, you know, we're, we're in pretty good shape. But until we've tried very hard to build these large-scale devices, we, we don't know for sure. The main enemy of a quantum uh, computer is uh, unwanted noise or interactions with the environment. And... One way of reducing this um, is to cool everything down a lot, and uh, that just gives you, you know, much more kind of precise control on a kind of quantum level. I mean, this is, you know, of varying levels of importance for different technologies. And as Raphael says, you know, we just don't know yet which will be the the most important technology for for building these things, or maybe it will be a mix of them. But in general, you'd want to cool something down in your quantum quantum system. So fridges are usually important. Ada Lovelace made the first computer program. I think that there's a debate, but yes, yes. I, I think so. Yeah. Before the first computer? Yes. yes. How do you do that? 
That's a very good question. What you need is you need a model of what the physical device will do, or you know maybe you don't even ever want to build it. You sort of say, well, the physical device that I care about, this is what it would do. And then um, this lets you say, well, first we do this operation on the device, then we do this operation, and so on. And um, you know all of the the constructions that we have from programming that you're familiar with, like loops and things like this. You know you can do them on paper if if you want. Um, So this is exactly what we do in the quantum setting as well. Yeah. So you're doing it. I mentioned that paper published by Raphael and Ashley, which delivered a blow to those hoping for quantum supremacy. Quantum supremacy is the idea that one day quantum computers will outperform traditional computers in particular tasks. As it stands, quantum computers aren't operating at a level which could set them against normal computers with all their capabilities. So the field of quantum supremacy research has set specific tasks for quantum computers to try and beat classical computers at. One of the two main areas where the hope of quantum supremacy lies is in boson sampling. Raphael and Ashley's work showed that to be a potentially more distant dream than we'd thought. Because the prospect of making a fully functioning quantum computer that can really do things like factorising numbers in the near future appears quite slim, because it's just technically very hard, and many steps to get there. A set of other problems have been invented, which compute something very specific mathematically, but not actually something which we want to compute, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So these are quantum experiments, which we're able to perform them, would calculate something which you can write down mathematically specifically, much more quickly than you'd be able to do classically, and therefore just actually establish for the first time an actual device you can look at that's computing something much faster than you could do classically. And boson sampling is an experiment where you essentially fire photons into what's called a linear optical circuit, and you measure where they come out. And it turns out that uh, trying to simulate from this probability distribution on a normal computer is very hard. So there was these proofs produced by Aronson and Arkhipov in 2010-11, which showed that if you were able to write a computer program on a normal computer, which was able to simulate from sort of sample from this probability distribution in quickly and what we call polynomial time, uh, then dramatic things would happen in mathematics. So, so the so-called polynomial hierarchy would collapse to the third level, which is a dramatic thing. And um, so people got very excited because in principle we just fire these photons and come out. They should, that should be quick, speed of light. And maybe we can do this. So it turns out the experiment's very hard because the photons all have to be fired at exactly the same amount of time and really precisely the same amount of time. They all have to be the same colour. And they go into the circuit and you have to lose none of them when they come out. But these are individual photons, single photons, which are you know, indescribably small. And it's very easy for a single photon to be absorbed in the process of going through, you know, being reflected in some devices, going through some circuit and coming out the other end. It's just experimentally very difficult to get these photons to fire at exactly the same time, be exactly the same colour, and not lose any of them in the process of going through this, this linear optical circuit. And essentially it becomes sort of exponentially harder as you increase the number of photons. I mean, these photons also, these are individual photons. They don't just jump when you tell them to jump, unfortunately. The photon emitters um, emit probabilistically. So they might emit sometimes and other times, they roll the dice. So that's fine, you have one of them. You just wait and it emits something, it's great. If you have two of them that emit at the same time, you have to wait for them both to emit at the same time. If you have 10 of them, they've all got to emit at the same time. If you have 50, chances get slim. So it turns out to be a tremendously hard experiment to do. So, so far, when we wrote the paper, I think the largest experiment anyone ever done involved five photons. And the hardness of the problem, sort of classically on a non-quantum computer, is a function of how many photons you have. But at the time, it was thought that the fastest classical algorithm 
would be too slow when we got to seven or eight photons. Mm -hmm. In the original paper, they said 20 um, photons. No one will never get there, 20 to 30, depends which paper you read. And so people were very excited because they were quite near seven or eight, and maybe one day they get to 20. Uh, but what we showed was that actually on your desktop PC, you could simulate the problem for more like 50. Well, on the desktop PC maybe 30 to 40, but on a faster computer, more like 50. And that's pushed into the horizon the prospects of establishing this so-called quantum computational supremacy via this boson sampling problem. And remember, it was one of the two major prospects for establishing quantum advantageal supremacy. And one of them has been pushed away now by, as a result of our paper. Does that make you feel, um, is it disappointment or is it kind of excitement because now there's another way to look? Or? It's, it's somehow essential to do this work, to, to do an honest effort to evaluate what the competition is if, you know, from classical you know, uh, technologies and, and algorithms. And, and I think the great thing about having these specific proposals that we have, like boson sampling is one, and there are you know, some others, is that they really give you a target to think about and to try and, and compete. And um, what we're seeing now is that some of these, these other proposals, you know, people are trying quite hard and putting out papers, uh, you know, perhaps from the perspective of you know, classical um, high-performance computing or optimization, where, uh, where they are you know, doing non-trivial things and trying to catch up with these you know, proposed quantum experiments, and so far they haven't, which gives them, you know, greater confidence that, that maybe something you know really that is hard to simulate is, is going on here. Um, so I think, I mean, obviously, you know, it would be in some sense nice if we got the answer out that you know eight photons is enough to outperform the best classical supercomputer, yeah. but um, you know that isn't the way the world is. <laughs> so yes, yeah. so quantum, sometimes people talk about quantum computing, they think about factorising large numbers as the most famous example which in principle were one able to make a large quantum computer one could do very quickly. Uh, but it also it seems that in practice this might be actually one of the goals which is quite far off because the amount of technology, technical steps we have to achieve to get there is quite large. But there are all kinds of other sort of exciting related topics that maybe don't make the mainstream press so much. There's the area of so-called quantum metrology, which is basically measuring stuff, which is in some sense much more short-term as in, in the sense that gains can be, have already been made and can be made continuously. Which when able to you know, revolutionise healthcare, for example, be able to, you can imagine that world where you're able to measure properties of you rather than having some sort of you know, potentially dangerous X-ray uh, quantities of tiny quantum electromagnetic radiation going through you, and this sort of technology will enable really kind of exciting Star Trek-style uh, health diagnosis tools. So there's a kind of a whole world of quantum technologies. Um, and the sort of the hard nose, the hard part, the quantum computation. Can you compute this particular function more quickly? It's just one part of it. Is it magic? The quantum magic? It's, uh, it is basically magic. I think, I mean, greater men than me have said that if you understand, if you think you understand it, you're really a fool. Yes, I mean, actually, may understand it much better than I do. But, are you, a, are you yeah. a fool, Ashley? You can ask me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I would agree. I mean, it's, uh, well, with maybe not the full part, but <laughs> maybe the full part as well. But... You know, I mean, I've been working the field for a long time now, and it's, it definitely seems magic when you first start looking at it. And I think it's it's kind of sad if you end up thinking it's not magical after even after thinking about it for a long time. And even if you understand the mathematics and you know you've seen the physical experiment in the lab, there is something deeply strange going on in, qu in quantum mechanics. And I mean, just you know, one of the most basic quantum algorithms that we know, which is for unstructured search. You know, you can find an element in a list of n elements in time less than it takes to look at every element in the, in the list. I mean, it's you know, in the square root of that time, pretty much, which is, is kind of remarkable, really. It's sort of, it's, um, 
makes you wonder what's really going on, you know, physically there. So, yeah. um, so, so I think uh, it does still seem quite magical, even though it's a sort of magic that we can you know, use for very specific practical applications. You know? I was intrigued to find out more about those applications, and there was a photonics conference in San Francisco, where one of the sessions was entitled "How Global Investment Is Bringing Quantum Technologies to the Marketplace." Now, unfortunately, I can't be in two places at once, but Margaret Harris from Physics World was at that photonics conference, and she met up with Anka Lohman after that session. Anka Lohman is a director at ESP Central, whose work is dedicated to knowledge transfer. Quantum technologies are technologies developed from science discoveries in the quantum realm. The way the science goes from those discoveries to market is via quantum hubs at universities, where groups of universities collaborate together and with industry. Anka Lohman has experience in that area. So I worked with Quantic and with Birmingham University quite closely. Um, the other universities uh, which have um, coordinated the hubs, so the hubs are university consortia. And so um, the Quantic Hub is coordinated by Glasgow University, the Sensing Hub by Birmingham University, but they have several other universities they're working with. And then you have Oxford University is mostly um, focusing on computation. And you have York University with a sort of the communication, the quantum communication, which is again with a set of different universities. So what are some of the applications that are sort of starting to emerge from the lab? Hmm. What do you see happening in the near future in, in this area? So I think the biggest part um, is quantum key distribution. This is almost, I would say it's already there. You know, it's, it's really close to market. Um, people are applying it. The biggest problem with that is if you look at telecommunication, you're always aiming to send packages, bigger packages faster because you have a lot of data. For quantum key distribution, it's actually, you need to have a lot of redundancies because you send entangled photons, for example, they will, you send, yes, you know, you get absorption. So you have to send quite a few of them that you get entangled photons through. So the applications are a bit limited, but if you send a secure key, so then when you, when you, I don't know, with banking, you get a device which has a, a set of keys for you. If you send that set of key encrypted with quantum communication, then you need not a lot of data. But that's the bit you which is... You just have to send the key yes. rather than sending everything. Absolutely. And then the rest will be sent everywhere, but you know you have the access to it. So, so that's, and so I think um, people talk about uh, satellite communication. Or maybe even if you talk about sensor systems, like if you don't have a lot of data to send or encrypted data, then I think the, the quantum key distribution makes a lot of sense as well. So we really just need the applications... To take, to take up and people to, to buy it and to see what happens in China would be interesting as well. And then the other areas we believe, what the communities kind of think, is, is the sensing side. Now, I mean, in terms of imaging, Glasgow has some areas, some things which are quite close to market as well. Is this quantum? People question sometimes. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> um, so, um, but on the other side, it's the sensing side. And so obviously, talk about timing, um, I, well, you, you look at cold atom cooling and uh, clocks. Um, I think the cold atom interferometers for gravimeters are easier to make than the clocks, I believe. But if you, so from a gravity side, the interesting thing is to see for voids, for example, in the ground. So I can see the applications for that. I think it's really key that the cost and size is right. The problem you have, for example, in the UK with using surveying equipment is that people think, oh, we don't need to use surveying, we just deal with the problems when they arrive, and that will not disappear, even if you have a quantum sensor. The, the, probably the earliest adapter will be military, 
they're, they're quite keen on it. They're, they're, they're um, keen on understanding um, locations with timing, and I think with gravity sensing, you can then also extrapolate the location. Um, so and it's so about getting more like kind of sense of location than you get even with yes, GPS. Absolutely, and also when you don't have GPS, that you can actually continue extrapolating more accurately than um, you know not than methods you use at the moment. So. I think this is further away um, because you have to have the combination between uh, timing and gravity. But I don't think we are talking about many, many years. You probably, I mean, I guess you will have the first devices maybe in I don't know two years, possibly. Two years. I don't. Know. I, I mean, it's just seeing how the companies in UK are progressing, um, and I don't know what what other people outside the UK are doing. But um, I think that there's a big speed up. That. But is it, is it going to be commercial viable? That's a different story. If I see product development from initial idea to product, something like a, like a mass spectrometer, I, I have seen people taking eight to ten years to get there. And we probably look at similar commercial you know, products in the end. I, I would assume just from, from so, my experience. So, so prototype or proof of principle in a couple of years, yeah. but commercialization could take Yeah, proper, proper commercialization, unless, you know, there is... The product development and making it ready to market is always, always takes longer than you expect, and, and it's the engineering side you don't necessarily anticipate. You know, you might get your core unit working, but then you need to get it uh, to a state that is robust, um, that it gets approval, and you know that all sorts of other things. And I think it will take longer. I can't say exactly, but it could be a proper commercial device, maybe in, in, in ten years or eight years time or something, unless somebody drives it really hard and pushes it forward, like maybe the military. So as with most new technologies, focus is on military and healthcare uses as the technology first develops. And I suppose as we look to save lives in different ways. I'll leave you to decide where you'd rather the technology was focused, but I wanted to know more about these quantum hubs. So I travelled up to Birmingham University to their quantum hub for sensors and metrology. From the outside, it looks like any other standard building on the university campus. Nothing to set it apart, really. But inside, there's what seems at times almost like a labyrinth of labs, with scientists wearing goggles to protect their eyes from lasers as they explore the possibilities of quantum technologies. And among it all is a big glass-walled office. There, I met with Professor Kai Bongs. And my first question was, what do they actually do in these quantum hubs? Like the whole idea of the quantum technology program is to be not science, but rather deriving technology economic benefits from science. So we are not doing like new science. We start from existing proven concepts, which have been better than anything classical, and we translate that as quickly as possible into something useful. And so we have identified in our hub at the start atomic sensors, atom-based sensors. So we're basing our, our sensors on an atom as a probe particle, which is always made the same by nature. It's essentially point-like on the scale of the laser wavelengths we use to interrogate them, which makes them very reliable, very precise uh, probe particles. Of course, they come with a little difficulty to get them under control sufficiently that you can like interrogate them very nicely. But that's where like the physics comes in um, and then interrogating them as they're quite tiny and lightweight you can't just look at them with a laser because you would poke them 
destroy your measurement, uh, so you do something which is called meta-wave interferometry, where the quantum comes in. And that's why I think uh, the wave-particle duality comes in somewhat helpful. At least, uh, like if you have a particle, it's very hard to imagine that being in two places at once. If you have a wave, like thinking about the beach, as summer is approaching, um, the waves hitting the shore, they are naturally extended, so they explore large areas of space, and you can easily imagine a wave to be in like two places at once. Mm. And so if we are accepting that particles like atoms can behave as waves, uh, then that opens up the uh, like way to like imagine them at exploring different areas of space um, so that we can really measure the differences between these areas of space. And we really put them into what you would call a quantum superposition state uh, that they are in two places at once or like if you imagine a traffic light being like red and green at the same time, uh, in two states at once. So we're really getting them into uh, under control to the quantum level, to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So we're essentially allowing the atomic matter wave regarding the atom not just as a little tiny particle, but actually as a little wave. We let that travel uh, in like, different places in space and time at once and bring them back together. Actually, we let them travel in different places in space at once. And depending on how we tailor like the different travel paths, if we make them like part of the atom travel a bit higher in the Earth's gravitational field than the other part, we see gravity very precisely. If we let the paths enclose an area, we can see rotation. Like if the Earth then rotates around this area, you can see like that tiny bit of rotation from the Earth. If you just do it with like the electron inside the atom, putting like the electron in a superposition state, being in like a higher wave function and a lower wave function at the same time, you can measure time very precisely. That's what our atomic clocks are based on. Or if you choose states which are, are like have different electron spins, so like you can imagine the electron as a little dipole magnet, and if that points differently, you see actually magnetic fields very precisely. In addition to that, we also have a part uh, which is slightly different as we are turning the um, rolls of atoms and light around and we're using atoms to manipulate the light instead of light manipulating the atoms and if we do that we can generate very precisely ordered light fields which we hope will have applications in microscopy and uh, lidar and uh, so just get better images by like avoiding the noise which comes with essentially seeing the light as particles as photons similar to rain like you hear a noise when it comes down uh, which is like a random white noise. If it w was all ordered, you would have a very like pure frequency of the rain coming down, which probably would not be very nice to like hear. But yeah. um, it would be much better for measuring where the drops come. And similar uh, similar things happen with photons uh, when we have a light beam. It comes as like a rain trickling down as photons. That's a noise which we can't easily beat unless we order the photons, and that's what the atoms allow us to do in these setups. I wanted to get more of a sense of the journey from science discovery to market. It is... Yeah, OK. In the end, we want to have something nicely packaged, and, of course, it will be a user interface to talk to the user who uses it in the end. Um, so, essentially, that is the journey we're taking in the hub. We know it works if we have an optical table in a laboratory, about like one by two meter size, full of 
optics and lasers and a vacuum chamber and magnetic coils and power supplies and computer control. Um, so you can fill a whole room with this and make a sensor work more precisely than anything classical you can do. Mm. But obviously, no one would ever imagine using that in any practical circumstance. So our journey is now to put that into something practical, which can be taken out of the lab and used uh, to help with like, the big challenges we are facing. Could be challenges in society or the things which keep uh, company bosses awake at night in terms of the challenges they face with their businesses. So examples are, for instance, uh, if we think about railway projects like HS2 and some point going between Birmingham and Manchester, they will have to go through an old mining area. Mine shafts underground are risk to that infrastructure. So finding those mine shafts between a few to like a few ten meters under the ground is a big, big issue. And if they are a bit deeper than a few meters, essentially the only way to find them is by drilling uh, boreholes, which is a very tedious effort. So if we can provide a means to see these in gravity, because it's a big hollow, less mass, so it has less gravitational effect, mm. uh, then we can help identify where is it worthwhile doing boreholes and possibly like lay that out more quickly. Mm. Similarly, brownfield sites. If we want to develop brownfield sites, um, one of the main risks there is are there still like old cavities under the ground? Are there old hidden chemical tanks? Uh, again, these will have mass differences, so having gravity uh, sensors to help identifying potential risks in these mm -hmm. uh, would help enormously. The operation which uh, ground surveying companies do is, is place them on the ground, wait a few minutes for a measurement, move them, place them again. So it's a stop-and-go operation, which is not so far away from what we do in the lab. It's only the other environment we are in. And then, as a next iteration, from that, we would then put them onto mobile platforms. But as soon as they are mobile, you can also think about full gravity mapping applications. And one of the key applications we are looking at there is with the development of autonomous shipping and also navigation for uh, underwater vehicles. Like nowadays, we all use the satellite navigation, which is not available under the seas because it doesn't penetrate under the seas. Um, so doing any like underwater exploration, finding oil and mineral resources, maintaining pipelines, you need a navigation which is independent of uh, satellite navigation. And with autonomous shipping, um, if you're thinking about a big container ship running completely on its own uh, in the future, then uh, you might be worried about pirates jamming that uh, like satellite navigation for that chip and like taking it off course and that's again where like that gravity map matching might be a solution uh, to find absolute positioning where you are without needing any external communication. Clearly one of the key developments will be getting the technology to a workable size. Uh, so at the moment these sensors are men high which we like, take out of the lab. The aim is to move them in the next phase to something which is more water bucket size so that you can really like, carry them across uh, a brownfield site or put them on a ship without too much of an issue. Um, and then over the next 15 years to shrink them eventually to something more like mobile phone size. We'll come back to this conversation and Kai's office later. But he took me on a tour 
of that seemingly labyrinthine web of labs. We pick it up as we ducked through the first set of plastic curtains. I want to start here. Um, so this is more like what a science lab would look like. This is an optical clock apparatus, uh, which we're using for more like fundamental science investigations. And so you typically would have a table full of like optics, lasers, mirrors, stuff. A big vacuum chamber with like lasers like all pointed inside. Like some, this is a Siemens mirror, so we have an oven here to create some atoms to go into the vacuum. They fly, they're slowed down with a counter-propagating laser, then we have lasers collecting them from all sides, stopping them. Uh, so we use laser cooling, which was the Nobel Prize in 1997, to essentially get the atoms under control to get our probe particles prepared. And then we use lasers to manipulate the atoms, which is essentially shooting laser passes at the atoms, which like, create the superpositions we need to like, make this matter wave interference. So moving from that vacuum chamber to like, something which looks like this. And having all the lasers in the end, it will be a box about, so like a small wine chiller, uh, which is, okay, won't go into your car, yeah. uh, but, um, and you can run that then as, uh, okay, as a clock to like, create a very precise tick mark. Like the first step would be to go into like the nodes of telecoms networks to provide like timely resilience if like GPS drops out for a few weeks or so, uh, or Iloran transmitters for like navigation at sea, um, or yeah, any critical application where you need like very precise time. So it would be like low numbers uh, high value at the start and of course it would be small enough to go on a satellite for yeah, like, timing yeah. from there yeah. and we, we are part of a European network to like drive uh, like space optical clock uh, by ESA We'll come back to the tour in a minute but back in his office Kai told me about some potential applications of these optical clocks Accuracy of time is clearly very important for, for a number of applications like GPS systems, which currently use atomic clocks. But optical clocks could increase that accuracy by a factor of a thousand. Time, it also opens up some fascinating new possibility where like, very fundamental science comes, comes in again, which is called relativistic geodesy, because at that level, if you're like, able to measure time to 18 digits... Um, the change of how clocks tick um, with the gravitational field they are in, which is a general relativistic effect, um, is that if you lift a clock by one centimeter on the Earth, uh, you change it by one part into the 18. So you start to be able to use clocks as height gauges, uh, measuring the Earth's potential um, and rectifying some of the uh, like Earth's coordinate system issues we have like by integrating up from sea level and using different sea gauges around the world. Um, and we haven't really like dug into all the possibilities with, uh, which that will open up. But we can definitely expect like new ideas and new things to come along from that side. Let's get back to the tour as we head into one of the other labs. And um, so, uh, yeah, this is one example of uh, like how small you might do things. We have set up a new training program for um, PhD or graduate students. They do a team project where they say all the students in the cohort, which might be 10, 15, have to work together to build a piece of technology which is not aiming as 
like the utmost novel science, but be good enough to work. And they have to essentially arrange themselves into uh, a team which has a project manager, subgroups responsible for different parts of the technology, and they have all to bring it all together within these six months to deliver something at the end. And the first year, this is the example, we, uh, we told them, here is a drone, a payload of 10 kilograms, it has these batteries, make one of these called atom pro-particle generators fly on there. And so they built this box, which is six kilograms, and it works on the drone battery, and they flew a uh, magneto-optical trap, uh, sort of a little cloud of uh, ultra-cold atoms, 10 microkelvin, um, on the drone. Awesome. And uh, so that was a fun project for yeah. them, but it also shows that how much, what's the potential in shrinking the technology. Yeah. And the next stage we are doing now is to like transform that into a sensor which we can actually fly. Through another set of plastic curtains and out into a corridor. Uh, our concept is not just to like, develop these on our own as academics, but we co-locate with industry. So these spaces are where like companies can come in, join us on the benches, try things out, knowledge transfer, move it across. And it's like we have... Like we started with 35.5 million for like the half to like for the academic program. We now have an additional 50 million in partnership projects with industry. So the main drive is now more provided by industry than by like the academics, and that's how it should be. So we really like that works very well. We get like we're working with 43 distinct companies around the hub to really create this network and make it stick in the economy. This is the technology transfer center of the hub, where we really have all the co-location with industry, the working and development of like some of the prototypes. And of course, we are still a network of universities which all contribute, but uh, they, they are focal points where we, which we can use to really have a dedicated discussion. I just go around the corner with you for a second. So this was all the space we have right now, but we are more this out of desks now, yeah. and. Um, so the nice thing is that uh, we've got a bit more support from the university and we're renovating uh, like 300 square meters around that corner here uh, to like get more co-location space and collaboration space with industry and uh, yeah, provide more of the like test and validation. Brilliant. Yeah, we were hoping, of course, that it all would work well, but uh, like we were quite overwhelmed by the interest of industry. As soon as the program started... Um, like we got requests that, oh, we want to do more. Can we like engage a bit deeper? Uh, which, uh, yeah, for like someone who was formerly more in the fundamental areas of science, is uh, quite a different experience. The large amounts of money involved and the exciting research and development taking place suggest very strongly that quantum technologies will be a part of our lives in the not too distant future. As quantum is synonymous with strange science, I wonder if public perception might be a concern, particularly if the first uses are military. And I wondered if Kai was concerned about public perception. No, actually not. I'm, of course, you always sit there and say, oh, there's a washing powder called quantum, there's a wine called quantum. Um, and on the other hand, it's usually meant with a like very positive meaning. So, I'm quite happy that there's a positive notion of quantum in there, uh, which brings it out to the wider public. Because, of course, you would be very unhappy if there was, like, everyone you talk to would just say, oh, no, quantum, I've never heard of this. 
Um, and, oh, I don't want to have anything to do to, with this. I've heard that in school in physics, which I never liked. And uh, so, yeah, so no, I'm actually quite happy with that because uh, it's making at least the term known and you have a point and you have a start of the conversation and you can then have the conversation and explain like what exactly you are doing. Mm. I was more frustrated uh, that like in the early days, quantum was always attached to quantum computing only while there are like so many other quantum technologies and you really have to look at the entire portfolio. Of course, quantum computing is maybe the most exciting quantum technology in the long term uh, because it will change our ability to do like calculations and yeah, essentially assess databases and solve problems in uh, like drug uh, development uh, in modeling of quantum systems like the molecules you use in drugs. So that might have enormous implications, but we are already using quantum communication in some parts, and that's like quite close to market. The quantum sensors are very close to market and will have like huge benefits in opening up all kinds of novel applications. And there are synergies between all these areas, which I think we just need to see as a whole package. We have been engaging in a public dialogue in responsive research innovation, which is led by EPSSC for the whole quantum program. And yes, there are some concerns there. Like for the sensors, they are like quite low, uh, especially for gravity. Um, it won't be an aggressive technology. Of course, we have uh, interest from the defense side, uh, and there will be uses in terms of identifying underground facilities or tunnels or things like that. And of course, the navigation, the first people who need to be really resilient uh, are people are. Uh, in the defense domain where it's much more likely you enter into a situation where someone like really gems GPS and you need to have a, a different solution. Um, all these are like not aggressive technologies, so we hope uh, that this won't have an impact on uh, the users. And so there have been reports about mobile phones being used as the triggers for improvised uh, explosive devices in Afghanistan. Uh, and you wouldn't stop using mobile phones due to that. Or if you look at how many thousand people are killed every year by cars, um, and still we don't treat the car industry as a terrorist organization, uh, because there is a public dialogue necessary, and we have to, like, as a society, essentially weigh the risks against uh, the benefits. And uh, so that will need to happen uh, as the technologies uh, and the applications come along. The one where I think this dialogue is really uh, most needed in the quantum sensor area is in the magnetic sensors, um, where um, we are setting up very, very precise magnetic sensors, um, which are so precise that they can measure uh, essentially the current uh, from the brain activities. Uh, so the neurons, which are essentially the brain activity, work on electrical impulses, electrical currents, and every electrical current creates a little magnetic field. So you can pick that up, um, essentially contactless, with a very precise magnetic sensors. At the moment, they are squid-based sensors, uh, which are superconducting quantum interference devices. Uh, you, can put, uh, you can buy uh, and put into hospitals uh, for uh, into magnetoencephalographs to look into brain activity, these are quite expensive and uh, difficult to maintain, so they're mainly used in research at the moment. 
with the quantum sensors, this might become much more available and much easier to use. And uh, you might have seen the Nature publication a few weeks back from our partners in Nottingham, working with UCL and uh, some companies on developing uh, essentially a head uh, sensor array, um, which as opposed to the magnetoencephalographs you can put in hospitals, can be used while you move your head. And so it opens up completely new possibilities to look into uh, like brain activity, brain function. So you can ask the person uh, like you measure to like do some, mo- uh, like some exercise where like they move their hands or uh, like walk uh, and see how the brain does that. So it gives a new approach to uh, diagnose potential brain diseases. Uh, we are working with neuroscientists who are very keen to uh, look into Alzheimer's and uh, like child concentration deficits. Um, and all these, like looking at brain functionality with these sensors, open up a whole range of new possibilities to um, address that. Mm-hmm. In terms of the responsible use of this, of course, Everyone would agree, I assume, uh, to use that to help people identify any diseases, help people live a better life, have a longer active life where they perceive like if you can like, help reduce dementia or build better drugs for that, that is generally perceived as very positive. Of course, you might also think about man-machine interfaces uh, where you steer your machine uh, by thought, um, which... I think for gaming, uh, applications might still be perceived very positive or for working in a factory where it's dangerous equipment which you like steer. Uh, but you might also think about like you, that means you train your brain to uh, like think in a way, in a certain way, to be able to address uh, and send the commands across. And um, we will need to understand the implications of that, for instance. Uh, and you might not want these devices to be used in interviews uh, for jobs or so uh, to uh, yeah, identify if someone's particular skilled in a certain area. So there's definitely a discussion needed once these devices come more into uh, use. Yeah, where, where is quantum technology most exciting? You? There have been quite interesting examples with gravity satellite missions, uh, the GRACE and the GOCHA mission uh, by NASA, ESA, DLR, and uh, they have been able to show that yeah, with that conventional technology, they are already able to see like, hundreds of kilometer scale aquifers. And uh, like my dream is to get the quantum sensors onto a satellite and drive the spatial resolution of these satellites down to like the 10 kilometer scale, which then you would start to enter the domain where you could see more or less all the aquifers you might be interested in. You also see essentially flooding areas uh, it's small enough to see like areas prone to flooding and you might have like some idea is the ground already like wet and you have to, like it might help you with planning the defenses um, but also you get into the area where you start to see um, like relevance on a relevant scale the magma flows uh, like re- uh, linked to volcanic and earthquake activity so it could has, have a huge impact on helping like feeding people but also avoiding natural disasters. And that's really what excites me and where I want to get it in the future. Uh, like One of the big puzzles in physics is that um, there's no proven theory which combines quantum mechanics and general relativity. 
the theories like quantum mechanics being the most successful theory we have for the microscopic world, and general relativity, a lot to do with like gravity, is the most successful theory you have for the macroscopic world, like the planets, the solar system, and the universe. We just don't know, at least not in a proven way, how to quantize gravity. So, and so there is an incompatibility in our physics model of the world, which driving this sensor technology forward, hopefully eventually we will be able to see like, where like, there's some deviations from just the pure sensor behavior, which then will tell us that um, yeah, maybe point us to the new unifying theory for everything. There's definitely something which will also help humanity to make the next step in understanding nature and the universe. The quantum realm is a strange one, but its principles are being used to develop real-world technologies across a wide spectrum of uses. For the most part, we probably won't even know when we're benefiting from quantum tech. A quantum sensor looks pretty much like a standard sensor, and how many people really know how the parking sensors work on their car today? Just as an aside, if you heard June's episode of the podcast, you'll know I was rooting for Cornwall as the site for the UK spaceport. It's now been announced that the government-funded spaceport, with vertical rocket launches, will actually be built in Scotland. But private investment will also see horizontal launches of space planes taking off from Cornwall. I guess I'll just have to make sure Physics World keeps sending me off to do these podcasts by the time those rockets and planes are launching. Thank you so much to Kai Bongs, Margaret Harris, Anka Lohman, Ashley Montanaro and Raphael Clifford for your contributions to this podcast. I'll be back next month to look at driving in the future. Thank you very much for listening. Physics World